Uh, turning your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, if you're using one of the pew chair Bibles, uh, you'll find it on page 1005. Hebrews chapter 8, um, and this morning we will look at uh, the whole chapter, it's just um, 13 verses. Uh, however, it uh, seems uh, long enough uh, to let you remain seated. Uh, so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry uh, that I just lost my place. That is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second For he finds fault with them when he says, and then this is the quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, um, that you would teach us. Uh, open our minds to hear and understand, our hearts to embrace, our lives uh, to embody uh, this, your word. To the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen. Uh, If somebody were to come up to you and say, so what exactly do I need from Jesus? What exactly do I need Jesus to be? What exactly am I looking for in a Redeemer? What what is it that we need from Jesus? What would you answer? How would you how would you respond to that question? 
maybe some of you are thinking, well, I mean, I'd say everything because kind of that's what we need is everything. But everything's not an answer. Um, the reality is what Scripture tells us is that we need Jesus both to be something and to do something. We need him to be someone and to do certain things. The fancy language you'll hear around here, really not all that fancy, but if you'll humor me. The person and work of Christ, the person and work of Jesus. That's kind of the, the term you'll hear. And what we mean by that is that, that we need his person. Like, for example, we need Jesus to be fully God and fully man. That's a, that's a, that's a who he is. That's a person. That's a, something about him. We need him in this context to be a priest like Melchizedek in the vein of Melchizedek, not in the vein of Levi or Aaron. But then we also need Jesus to do certain things. We need his work. We need his obedience. You and I have no obedience of our own. We have no righteousness of our own to walk into the throne room of heaven and say, hey, God, look, here's what I've got for you. You should accept me. We need him to be righteous. We need him to do certain things. And the reason I bring all that up, the reason I use that kind of as the, the intro to the chapter, because that's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is doing in chapters 7 and 8. In chapter 7, he pointed us to Christ as our priest. And so one of the things we see right off the bat in chapter 8 is that we need Jesus to serve as our priest. But we need a particular kind of priest. Hebrews 7 told us that his, his per, in his person, in his being, he's not a Levi priest. He's not an Aaron priest. He's not a law priest. He's a different kind of priest. And in chapter 8, he begins to, to unpack what Christ does as our priest. He talks about the essentially the, the person of Christ as our priest in 7 and the work of Christ as our priest in in eight. And so the first thing we read in, in uh, we, we hear in chapter eight is that that Jesus serves as our priest. You can actually sort of scroll back to chapter five and, and the writer introduces Melchizedek, introduces that quote from Psalm 110, only to realize, hold on, this is going to cause trouble. And he wanders off somewhere else. I think I mentioned before that I was grateful for a writer with a little bit of ADD. And then he comes back finally in chapter 7 and actually sort of finishes the thought of Christ as, as a Melchizedekian priest. Is that a word? Did we just make up a word? I think I just made up a word. A priest like Melchizedek, one who is um, a priest forever and a priest by promise, not a priest according to the law. And he turns his attention to the work of Christ as a minister, verse 2, in the holy places. And I, this may be obvious. Sometimes I guess it's, it's helpful to state the obvious. Um, sometimes it's probably good to sort of call attention to that which seems just patently true. But the word serve or service or even servant, they're all others-centered. Have you ever thought about this? Like, 
The word serve means that I have someone else's good in mind. I have someone else's benefit or need or joy or whatever the case may be in mind. I'm focusing as I serve someone else, I'm I'm not being selfish. I'm not thinking about me. I'm not doing what I want or what I need, but I'm actually got your needs at the forefront of my mind. The word serve is decidedly others centered. And that's really what's behind the word minister in verse two. And then again in verse six, although that in verse six is a different form of the verb, but the concept is the same um, uh, that uh, that he's his ministry. He's obtained a ministry. It's the same word just turned into a noun. Um, the same root just turned into a noun. And the, the Greek word there actually is um, the word that gives us the word liturgy. It literally means the work of ministry. The work related to, to ministry and worship and service for other people. And so the, the writer of Hebrews calls attention to the fact that Christ is our minister in the holy places. He's our, our, our service worker, um, perhaps might even uh, work in that context. In our place, serving us, but serving us in the very throne room of heaven. He's our liturgist, if you want to take the actual Greek word and turn it into a verb. But you notice in verse 3, if he ministers in the holy place, then, then you get a little glimpse of what his ministry is. Someone who ministers in the tabernacle, someone who ministers in the tent, someone who, who serves as a priest by rule has to have something to offer. The high priest can't just go into the holy place or into the tabernacle with nothing. You, you can't walk in there with, with no offering. You have to have something in your hands. That's why we sing, by the way, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross. I, claim. I have nothing to offer of my own merit. And so then the question becomes, well, well hold on a second. If Jesus is ministering in the holy place in heaven, in that tabernacle, in that throne room, what exactly, what offering did he carry with him? I mean, like, do you watch him at the end of, of, of Matthew? Do you watch him at the beginning of Acts? As he ascends into heaven, he's carrying a lamb? No. Because the reality is he offers himself. He is, he is the offerer and the offering. He's the sacrificer and the sacrificee. Those are probably not words. He's, he's not just the one who goes into the holy place and with the blood of some other random lamb on his hands, instead he walks in with his own blood on his hands. And so he goes in with an offering, but it's himself. He is both priest 
and sacrifice. We see that Jesus serves as a a minister, a priest of God's people. But that raises a question. Uh, We've already sort of I've already sort of mentioned it, and this this is one of those times you can't sort of hold stuff back. You let it out a little at a time. Everything comes out at once. But um, it it raises a question. If he's a minister, then then where? Because he's, he's not in the temple, which, by the way, I think is still standing as the writer writes this. In fact, there's... There's actually probably four clues in this chapter alone that the temple is still standing. Uh, Verse 2, verse 4, verse 13, um, at least, plus verse 6, I think it was. Um, But there are these little, little indicators along the way where the writer uses these present tense verbs that implies that that there are priests in the temple Uh, offering sacrifices currently as he writes this letter. So where is it that Jesus serves? Jesus serves as a, a priest for God's people, but he also serves as our priest in a better tabernacle. Notice verses 1 and 2. Jesus is actually, he's ascended. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you'll remember, no doubt, I'm sure, because you remember everything I ever say up here. Uh, But in our series in Exodus, and that's only been a few months ago, um, you know, that the the temple, the the tabernacle, that mobile tent, um, the dwelling of God among the people had this this outer courtyard. It had a, a, a sort of an inner room and then the most holy, the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant was. The high priest would enter there and sprinkle blood there on the mercy seat. Which, by the way, is the only seat in the tabernacle. The only person that gets to sit in the tabernacle is God himself. He's seated on this throne between the cherubim, the the mercy seat. And if you recall, the the lid of the box, and I hate to diminish the Ark of of the Covenant into that, but the, the lid of the box, the box that is the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus never called the lid a lid. It always called it the mercy seat. There's... Walk through in your mind, walk through the tabernacle, find the chair. There isn't one. There's a table. There's a lampstand. There's there's an altar. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but there's there's no chair. Because the work of the priest is never finished. Because the priest never gets to go in and sit down and say, Glad that's over with. Because he knows he's going to have to come back all over again. But Jesus, we're told, is seated, verse 1. And he's seated at the the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's not in the temple in Jerusalem, which I think is still standing. He's in a a better tabernacle, a better tent. And what's interesting is the 
the the word that word is used in this chapter described to describe the tabernacle and the same greek word is used to describe the tent in which jesus ministers now and yet notice that jesus is seated but he's seated at the right hand of a throne that's king language the writer begins to to blend the role of Christ as both priest and as king. The the, the ruler, the king of the people is the priest. Jesus is the, the king priest who sits at the seat of power in the very throne room of heaven. But he can sit down because his work as the sacrifice is complete. Isn't that really the aim of those three simple words on the cross? One word in Greek. It is finished. Well, if it's if it's finished, then he can sit down. And if he's got to stand up, then it's not finished. And so part of the picture then is that Christ has accomplished all that He has to accomplish for our salvation. But He serves, verse 2, in the true tent. It's a tent built by God, not by man. It's not the tent that Moses and the Israelites built between Egypt and the Promised Land. This isn't the tent that Bezalel and Aholiab, you remember them, those gifted people who could work with literally everything and you really want to smack people with that kind of gift, that kind of talent. They could work in with every sort of, with wood, with precious metals, with cloth, with all kinds of things. And they, they did their work and oversaw the work of, of building, establishing the tabernacle. That's not the tabernacle that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. This is a tabernacle made by God. This is the true tabernacle. Now, don't let that word throw you off. I don't know about you, but when I hear true, my first thought is false. Well, if that's the true, then the one that Aholiab and Bezalel built was false. That's not the contrast. That's not the distinction being made. It's true in the sense of original and, and copy. Bezalel and Aholiah build a copy. They build a... Imagine... Okay, humor me. Would you humor me on this? Just pretend this makes any sense at all. But imagine if you could go up into heaven with a big giant spotlight and shine the spotlight on the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle... So that the shadow landed on the earth. And that shadow took on a three-dimensional shape. That's the image. That's the language. There's a, there's a true and a real and an, an original that is in heaven. And there's the copy on earth. You know the deal. You know when you build something, you tend to have a blueprint. You go from the blueprint to the building itself. I think in this instance, um, it, the, the order went a little different. 
I think in this instance, the blueprint was made from the tabernacle in heaven, the spiritual tabernacle. And that blueprint was given to Moses. In essence, right? That was the the language. We saw this in Exodus. We've already seen this in this passage that God told Moses, make sure you make this tabernacle according to the pattern that I give you on the mountain. What did Moses see? I have no idea. Did he see a blueprint? Was he just given verbal instructions? Did he just know? We don't have any idea. Don't even bother guessing. But the, the blueprint from which you build the tabernacle in the wilderness was the design made from the true in the heavenly places. The descendants of Levi, Aaron, and his sons after him served the copy. And the copy was great while it lasted and it served its purpose, but it was never sufficient. In fact, it was never intended to be sufficient. It was never intended to be permanent. It was never designed to be the one true final tabernacle. We see in Hebrews 8, Jesus is, is, serves as our priest, but He also serves as our priest in the true, the better tabernacle. But we also see that He's our priest because He serves a better covenant. Notice the priests in verse 4. They serve in the tabernacle. They serve in the temple. And there's one of those uh, places where um, the end of verse 4, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, present tense verbs. I think the writer's going, look, there are There are Levitical priests in the temple now. They offer sacrifices and gifts and offerings according to the law. But if Jesus remained on earth, He couldn't do that. He wouldn't be allowed to. You you remember, ladies, you remember Ezra. It's been a year, but you remember Ezra. There were literally people who came back from exile in Babylon, returned to Israel and said, we're descendants of Levi. And they said, okay, cool, great. Show me your papers. Show me your genealogy. We, we, can't, we can't find it. We, we don't have it. Great. You can't serve. Only descendants of Levi served in the temple. Jesus isn't a descendant of Levi. He's a descendant of Judah. If he stays on earth, he can't serve as a priest. He actually has to. And that's sort of the aim of verse 4. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be priest at all. Because he's from the wrong tribe. Jesus can't be priest in the earthly tabernacle. Because the law wouldn't allow it. Enter Jeremiah 31. Even Jeremiah. Now this is hundreds of years before Jesus. Even Jeremiah writes in verse 30 in in chapter 31. And we read from Jeremiah 31 as our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago. And you see so much of it quoted here in Hebrews 8. 
acknowledging that there is a new covenant coming. And that new covenant is going to replace this one. It never should have been a surprise to anybody, least of all the devout Jews of Jesus' day, that there was such a thing as a new covenant. Because Jeremiah, hundreds of years before, wrote about that coming day, that coming new covenant. And these, by the way, are the words that Jesus takes on his lips when he institutes the Lord's Supper. This cup is the, hey, Jeremiah 31, new covenant in his blood. So even Jesus and the people gathered around, the the disciples gathered around and recognized, here's the change. This is the thing that Jeremiah talked about so many years ago. Well, how is the new covenant better? Well, notice, first of all, that the law won't be written out there. You know, we get all up in arms about the Ten Commandments having to come down off the wall in a courtroom. But we don't get all up in arms about the Ten Commandments not being acknowledged in our own hearts or in the hearts of the people in the courtroom. That's actually the better deal. That's the better condition. The writer says, Jeremiah says, and the writer of Hebrews grabs onto this. Look, Jeremiah told us there was going to be a day when the law would be written in the minds and hearts of God's people. Why? Because It wasn't in the minds and hearts of God's people then. They they rejected God. They they threw him off. They left. They they divorced him, as it were. In fact, you notice that there was, in Jeremiah 31, it used the language of husband. And in many ways, what we read in verses 8 through, well, 8 through 12, sounds like a marriage. And the problem with Old Testament Israel is they ran after other gods. They turned their backs on the one who had had set his affections on them and drawn them to himself and delivered them from slavery and bondage and was taking them to the promised land. And they said, we don't want you anymore. The great guilt of Israel is idolatry which is rejecting the husband who has loved them and wooed them and delivered them. There's this picture then that in the new covenant, the law will be in the minds and hearts of God's people. There's a second glimpse. Notice how verses 11 and 12. It's also... Better because there he will be merciful towards their sins and remember their sins no more. Now, the reality is there was forgiveness in the Old Testament, but it was never permanent. That's why you had sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, at least annually, and this regular, constant bloodshed sacrifice for the priest first and then for the people. 
And so the, in the new covenant, the blood of the sacrifice is finally sufficient. It's finally sufficient to do what the blood of bulls and goats could only point to. Could only anticipate. Another way this, it's better is the language of Israel and Judah in this passage. In Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah anticipates that Israel and Judah is no longer merely national. This isn't a, a, a concept of nation. This isn't a, um, a, a geography term. This isn't a point on the map term. This isn't something you can do on global or worldle if you're into those, all the ulls out there on uh, the interwebs. You, you can't find it on a map. Why? Because... Well, because Israel becomes the church. The Israel becomes worldwide. This is going to be true of people all around the globe, not just in one place. Sure, there's examples of people coming into Israel. Rahab, Ruth stand out as perfect illustrations. But in the new covenant, it is decidedly worldwide. That's why Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew 28, make disciples of that nation. That's not what he says. Make disciples of all nations. And why in Romans we find out that the that true Israel are those who look in faith to Christ. Who are trusting in Him and Him alone for their salvation. Jesus is the mediator, the servant, the priest uh, of His people in a better tabernacle and of a better covenant. There's a, um, you know, I'm always hesitant. Um, I'm hesitant to sound like I might be bashing other churches, and I promise I don't mean it that way. And since none of us knows where's the, where this church is, I can't even find it again. But twice now, somewhere between here and uh, Chattanooga on one of our many drives up to take the kids up there to Covenant, um, I found a church building. That out in front of the church building, there's a, there's a statue. There's a, and it's, it's two tablets of stone. And the Ten Commandments. It's intended to be, I mean, that's certainly what it looks like. And when I saw it the first time, I tried to find it on the way home and couldn't. When I found it the second time, I just dropped my head. Because think about what that says architecturally. Christ in Architecture. Great book. Um, think about what that, what that says is that the basis of fellowship within these walls is the Ten Commandments. Now look, I'm all for the Ten Commandments. I'm all for all ten Ten Commandments. I literally took a week on each one of them in our series in Exodus. You can go back and find that. So don't hear me saying I don't agree with the Ten Commandments. But do hear me saying the Ten Commandments are not the foundation of our fellowship here. The law of God written out there is not the basis by which you and I are united. That's the cross. That's Jesus. Jesus gets that place, not the Ten Commandments. And so the writer of Hebrews 
reminds us all over again, especially writing to Jewish people who are tempted to go back to the law, who are tempted to go back to the old way because that's just so tangible and it's just better. And I get to see the lamb and I have the blood and it gets on my hands. and I have to go wash my hands and reminded all over again of my guilt and my shame and my sin. The writer of Hebrews says that pales in comparison to the beauty and majesty and sufficiency of the new covenant. Mediated not by law, not by ten commandments, not by tablets of stone, but by Christ. Look to Christ. There find forgiveness. Look to Christ. There find redemption for your guilt and your shame. There be made whole and new. There find not just the one who offers the sacrifice, but who is himself the sacrifice on your behalf. And notice, again, this quote from Jeremiah sounds like a marriage. And as you read verses 11 and 12, you hear suggested there, till death do you part. I will remember their sins no more. Forever. It's God's marriage vow to His people. I'm wholeheartedly committed to you. And I will deliver you and preserve you to the end till death do you part. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this sure and certain word of forgiveness found in Christ and in him alone. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to Um, suffer as the sacrifice and then to serve as the priest who has offered that sacrifice on our behalf. Would you remind us all over again of the glory, the wonder of this new covenant relationship we have with you? That as we read the Old Testament, we see a sacrificial system that pointed to you. We see lambs and bulls and goats that pointed to you. We see priests that pointed to you. And we pray that you would remind us that you now serve in the true tabernacle, the true temple. And that our guilt, our shame, the punishment that we deserve has all been handled. Would you grow in us deeper gratitude uh, in our words and in our actions to the honor and glory of Christ we ask it. Amen.